have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls. It's barricaded the world with hate. You stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical. Our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent. And all will be lost. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Dr. David Hamilton. David is a best-selling author, international speaker, award-winning columnist and educator. With a PhD in organic chemistry and background in the pharmaceutical industry, you became inspired by the placebo effect and left to write books and teach people how to harness their mind and emotions to improve their health. You've since written 10 books, including The Little Book of Kindness, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, I Heart Me, and the Amazon bestseller The Five Side Effects of Kindness. In addition to writing a regular blog on your website and blogs for the US Huffington Post, you are the Kindness Czar for Psychologies magazine, monthly columnist for Soul and Spirit magazine, and in 2016 you were voted Best Writer by readers of Kindred Spirit magazine. As well as appearances on the likes of Channel 4's Sunday Brunch in the UK and CBS Sunday Morning in the US, you starred in the award-winning documentary Heal, a film about the powers of the mind, featuring some of the world's most highly regarded scientists and spiritual teachers. Today, you act as an advocate for kindness and work passionately to inspire a kinder world. David, it's incredible to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Elliot. It sounds like I'm on This Is Your Life. <laughs> That's good. You should write my bio for me. That's Thank awesome. It makes, it makes me sound more impressive than, I, in, my own, than in my own head. <laughs> you write all that down. Take a note of that. Definitely. Uh, no, it's, it's brilliant to have you here. Thank I mean, you. This, is, this has probably been a couple of years in the making, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're I'm, you're I'm a busy glad, guy. I'm glad we finally got here. <laughs> and we don't even live that far apart. It's like, what, an hour on the train? That's what, right. 40 miles, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you uh, coming through and, and being here so oh, it's great <laughs> so if we can go to uh, your early life as a, a means of just sort of introducing you um, what was growing up like for you great actually I, I had a really good childhood I've got three sisters and uh, being the only boy I suppose uh, my sisters were nice nice to me I, I, th I think I think it was it was nice for me to have three sisters who all kind of looked out to me, and but also uh, kind of we all looked after each other, so it was really, really good. You know, it was really nice. And, and mum and dad, you know, we just like, had a nice family. I grew up in a wee village called Banknock. I've heard of that. Actually. Yeah, tiny, yeah. tiny wee place, not that far from Stirling, Falkirk, Cumbernauld, central yes. in the central belt of Scotland. Uh huh. Yeah, and I went to a, a primary school in Denny, mm -hmm. another wee, wee town, and high school in Stirling. 
I St. Modens High School in Stirling. Yeah. yeah. So it's been great. What were your uh, your early aspirations growing up? Uh, well, actually, my, my uncle Daniel will tell me, I'll tell you that when I was a wee boy, I apparently I wanted to be a saint. A saint? <laughs> <laughs> Every Christmas time. Every year, <laughs> any family get together, my Uncle Daniel brings it up. Oh, David wanted to be a saint when he was a kid. I, I don't remember. Apparently, when I was four years old, he says, What do you want to be? I said, A saint. A saint. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't remember. What's the, what's the career path for a saint? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, I mean, I write about kindness, so maybe... <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> you know. not, not too far off the uh, mark. But, but mm. I actually, I, to be honest, when I, was, when I went to high school, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I, I started in my, my later years of high school to gravitate towards the idea of doing medicine. Oh, right, okay. Uh, but I did, actually didn't have the grades to get... See, I didn't know... No one in my... Billy, I think I was the second person in Bank Knock ever to go on to university. Mm. So I, I had no background in family or frame of reference to even know how to study. So, so when it came to studying for exams, I didn't really know what I was doing. I, so I didn't know you had to revise, Can I, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh -huh. so, so I didn't actually get the grade. By the time I realised what you actually had to do, I, I hadn't actually got the initial grades, but certainly good enough to... Uh, to be honest, here's the thing. I didn't even, I had no intentions of going to university until until I learned a wee bit about it because it was my chemistry teacher that said after my, my results came in, have you ever thought of going to university? And this is just before the medicine thing. Uh, and he said, and I said, oh, I couldn't afford university because I thought there was only two universities in Britain and that was Oxford and Cambridge. Hmm. I'd seen them, I'd seen the boat race. And mm -hmm. as they know, one in my family or the village had ever gone to higher education. So I assumed that you had to be really wealthy. And we came from a working class background and no one can, in our place, as I say, only one other person in Banknock had ever gone on to universities. So I said, oh, I can't afford that. And he explained it to me. But there's lots of universities and you get a grant at the time, you could get a, a maintenance grant. So by the time he explained it to me, I ended up just doing chemistry because it was my chemistry teacher, <laughs> Mr. Tracy, and I was pretty good at chemistry uh, and, and I liked it. But when I was applying, I decided to apply for uh, for medicine. I realised I wasn't going to get in. So eventually I just applied to chemistry and and certainly became a chemist by <laughs> default. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. It was my I had my maths teacher explained how to do, how to go to university, I probably would have gone and done maths. It just so happened that was the context. It's funny how things <laughs> yeah. happen. And so uh, getting your doctor, I mean, was that just an extension of studying and you just continued on? Yeah, let, let's be really honest. You know, I, I didn't feel mature enough to go on to go work yet. It's funny, I, I, I felt like just, I still felt like a wee boy. You mm. know, here I was graduating with my honours degree. I was 21 and I just didn't, feel ready to go work and so a couple of professors having inside information a few days before the results came out knowing exactly what you've got I started mm -hmm. to feel that I'd got a decent mark because a queue of professors kept coming up and trying to tap me up to come and do a PhD in their lab and I, and I thought I could do a PhD it would save me working because I'm not ready yet so I ended up again it was funny how things happened but I did a PhD initially not because I wanted to but because it meant I didn't have to think of getting a job for another three years yeah but but it, I don't mean that I didn't want to work I just didn't feel mature enough mm -hmm. you know I, 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 I was probably quite a young 21 year old 
in the sense that young and inexperienced. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh -huh. for me as a 21-year-old, I was probably like a lot of 16, 17-year-olds who were ready to go out into the world, but I certainly wasn't. And so I, I, I did a PhD really because it seemed like the, the best thing for me at that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? Hmm. Well, you know, before becoming a, a writer and a, a teacher and all the amazing things that you do, I know that you were working for AstraZeneca, which are a massive big pharma company. I, I, what led you to that then? It, to, to work for them? Yeah. It, well, what it, was it, the path to there? It, it was a natural extension after my PhD. A lot of people, I, I did a science called organic chemistry. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with organic food. <laughs> it, it's like Lego. Uh, but instead of taking Lego blocks and sticking them together to make shapes, to assemble shapes, organic chemists use atoms instead of Lego blocks. But I've, he I've heard you say that. I'm yeah. sure it's more complicated. The, the, <laughs> but the, the principles, the, yes. of course, there's, there's lots of techniques to join particular types of atoms together in particular ways. But mm -hmm. the, the concept is the same. It's about assembling shapes. And mm -hmm. the shapes that you assemble often end up as pharmaceutical drugs. So people like me tend to be recruited by the big pharmaceutical industries uh, and big pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. to literally assemble drugs, build, build drugs, because that's what it's organic chemists who literally build them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, one of my questions is your thoughts on the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, uh, it gets quite a, a hard or, or bad rap from some people around ethics and, and whatnot. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, do you know, I, I personally didn't experience any of that, and, and I'll tell you why. I wasn't exposed to it, and, and I'll tell you why. So I took a job as an organic. I went into the, the industry because I wanted to cure cancer. And I thought, so that is my best way of doing it. And mm. so when I became a scientist, it turned out that most of my friends and my colleagues that I worked with had a similar ideal. So at, at the level of scientists, you'll find that pretty much everyone is there because they want to save life. They want to do something that gives meaning and purpose to their lives. So to be really honest, that's all I experienced. Because when you're inside the company, you're not really aware of what's happening at board level and the financial decisions that have been made. So I, I was kind of... I, I wasn't privy to that, and nor was I interested, to be honest. Uh, I really just wanted to make a difference. Yeah. And so my entire purpose and sense of meaning of being a chemist was I was trying to cure cancer. And if it meant that I could assemble uh, molecules, drugs in certain ways that could cure cancer, then that gave meaning and purpose to my life. And, yeah. and so I, I didn't really see that side of it. I, I'm aware of what people... I'm aware of the ethical issues that that go on, but I certainly wasn't exposed to it. I wasn't I wasn't involved in it. If that's what you that's what I mean. Yeah, no, no, of course. Yeah. I I wasn't trying to sort of imply that, but just in the sense as to the perception of often course, is that. Yeah, but yeah. I think part of it as well is that there's this. Uh, idea that GPs and doctors they don't treat health, they treat sickness. Mm. But you know the, the pharmaceutical companies are merely manufacturing the drugs in order to help sick people. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's the system as a whole I know, that it's needs... A system. You know what I, I love is there's a growing band of doctors specialising in lifestyle medicine, uh, uh, you know, GPs, uh, and what they're doing, as well as prescribing med medication, they're also uh, prescribing lifestyle. So they're educating people on food, on mm, diet. Yeah. And they're educating people on, on what you eat. Even one, you know, one of my friends... The GP takes people, it takes patients regularly to the supermarket and shows them what to buy. Hmm. Shows them the food to buy and how to read labels and stuff. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so you have a growing band of, of doctors 
who are who are very focused on on helping people to change their lifestyle, recognizing that lifestyle factors put a heavy burden on our health. Yeah. And if we can understand that, and so I think that's a great shift in medicine mm -hmm. itself. It's not saying med you know, drugs are wrong. It's just saying in addition to these things, all these other things are stuff that we can do as well that we kind of know common sense, but many people don't know what to do or what to eat. Yeah. I mean, my, my yeah. family have never really known when I was growing up what to eat. There was no education on nutrition. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've learned it now as an adult. So I, I have, a, I'd say, a, a decent diet and lifestyle, but because mm -hmm. I've educated myself uh, and, and that certainly helps to lower the risk of certain conditions. Yeah. You know, so I love that, that medicine's shifting in that way, albeit under the you know, there's an undercurrent of it and it's not really apparent in a mass way at the moment, but it's definitely shifting. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So so how did the work that you did there prepare you for what you're doing now? <laughs> oh, you, I had a fascination with the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. I, I was always interested in the mind-body connection. You know, my mum and I used to have these conversations when I was a teenager. But, but when you're building drugs and you're looking at you're looking for evidence that they work. It comes back from clinical trials. Uh, and then you find that a ton of people are improving on a sugar pill. Not because they took, you know, they didn't get the drug that you built. <laughs> yes. But they got a sugar pill and sometimes almost getting the same improvement. And it's like, wow, isn't that amazing? And my interest in the background, even as a teenager and growing up, had always been in the idea of the mind-body connection. Mm -hmm. But to, and I'd read a couple of books on the, the general idea, but to see the data was, boom, wow, it immediately wakens you up. It wakens you up so in the sense that it's no longer just an interest, it's something I've got to do something about this. I, I need not only to understand it, but I need to understand what does this mean for me and what does this mean for you? And could I, could, I so, suddenly started feeling that part of my meaning and purpose in life mm -hmm. was to take this knowledge, understand it and really help people in a lifestyle sense to understand the impact of mind and emotion. So that became an absolute passion. I spent and I spent as much time researching in the library and outside of the company in the mind body connection as I did as a chemist, you know, in, in the pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. until I'd gained I'd gained so much data and understanding that I thought, you know, now's the time I'm leaving now and I'm going to go out and write books and educate people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because, I mean, oh, and we'll, we'll get to this because kindness has kind of become a big part of mm -hmm. your, your thing. Um, but So did you expect when you left that you would be focusing mainly on the placebo effect? It, or was there more of a, like, it, was it a bigger plan? It, it, was, a mu it was much broader. I have and always have had a very broad range of interests. Mm -hmm. I think my, my tapestry is quite broad in that sense. Hmm. But, but everything that I'm interested in uh, 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 is interrelated mm -hmm. to each other. So I had the interest in the placebo effect, but in terms of general improving your, the quality of your life was a major thing. So understanding the placebo effect was really just partly a way to to educate people into how to make lifestyle improvements, make improvements to your life and your health and your, your reality, all these things. So the placebo effect wasn't necessarily my goal to teach. It was a way of explaining a broader concept, if that makes sense. Yes. And, and, so, and so one of my passions was to educate about the kind of person that you are. 
because I, I think we change the world and make a difference by the quality of people that we are. And, and that was mm. a major part of what I need. I felt I wanted and needed to educate people and was the, the quality of person. And, and so again, that that's part of what, why I talk about kindness so much. Yeah. Uh, and so placebo effect and the mind-body connection, they are parts of that, they feed into it by, by giving an explanation for why it is that some of these effects occur. Why it is that, for example, being kind to someone can have a physical effect on your heart and your nervous system, your arteries, your immune system. It's a broader understanding. So it all feeds into the broader thing about the quality of person that I wanted to inspire in people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Hmm. I tried to research as well as possible your first book. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your first book was in 2008 and it was, Is Your Life Mapped Out? Unraveling the Mystery of Destiny and Free Will. That Is was that actually my <laughs> fifth book. Is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, went th I went through a phase when I was literally knocking them out one a year. I was just so inspired, I couldn't stop. No, I, my first book I self-published in 2005, and it's called It's the Thought That Counts. Yeah. I might have seen that. It's the Thought That Counts. Was that counts. republished, or was it? It was republished by Hay House eventually. Yeah, see, this is the thing, later. when it's updated, it then yeah. sort of... Um, and it's on know. its fourth cover, I think. Like different yeah. reprints, different, uh, different reprints and stuff, because it, it, it's consistently still, still selling. But I self-published it because I, I, cont I wrote the, the book, and I... You know, it's funny because I failed my English at school in my first <laughs> attempt. If anyone told me you'd be a writer, I go, <laughs> but I realised that, that writing is just a, a what turned what helped me to become a writer was recognising that writing was just a way of educating. It was just a way of of explaining to people how things worked mm -hmm. and stuff. So that twit shape that change in my mind made it all possible. Mm. And, and so, but I, I can't. I sent my manuscript to every single publisher that done anything to do with self-help books in the UK and they all said thanks but no thanks uh, and so I self-published and then I contacted Hay House five months into the lifetime of the self-published book and they took it right away and so they republished about a year later so a, a new edition the same book uh, we, you know they put an editor on it so you know smooth the cracks a wee bit if you like because mm -hmm. an editor does great does you know, great work in that kind of way and and so it became a, a Hay House book in 2006 and then I wrote one in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, yeah. 211, 212, 214. <laughs> Serious? <laughs> yeah, I just had so many, I couldn't wait to get, now that I had a publisher, I couldn't wait to, to put everything out there, you know. It's, it's actually one of my later questions, but I'll ask you just now then, I mean, where do you find the content and the energy to, to write as much as you do? Because, I mean, if you look as well at the, um, the archives on your website, I mean, it goes back to, uh, go back to April 2011. There's masses of stuff. Yeah, well, see, what, what happens when I'm writing a book is I come across research. Because what, what I do, I go into medical journals and science journals, psychology journals, uh, and I usually find stuff that doesn't fit with the book that I'm writing. But it could certainly build a separate story of something mm -hmm. else. So I keep all that. Huh. And, and usually I find that the concept of another book, for example, the first book I wrote on kindness, it came out of research for the book, uh, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, which was my third book. Mm -hmm. And I found all this stuff about the effect of kindness and compassion on the heart. 
you know, in the nervous system, on the immune system, and it just didn't fit. I wanted it to fit, mm-hmm. and how your mind can heal your body, and I thought, it, it doesn't, but how about a new book? So I wrote one called Why Kindness is Good for You, which later became a, 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 another version of that called The Five Side Effects of Kindness, yeah. which I then redid as an illustrated shorter version called The Little Book of Kindness. <laughs> okay. So, it, so it, it's funny how the, these things happen, but that, so a lot of times books that I write come out of research for another book and mm. they just don't fit that book at the time. So it's a never, I, I, I've, I'm never short of ideas because there's so much stuff I've learned in the process of research. So how, much, how much time do you spend researching? For a book? Mm-hmm. It, it varies, but you know, I, I probably won't do any writing of the chapters and narrative until I've probably spent a month or two, three, four days a week, several hours a day, trawling through uh, scientific papers until I've pulled out of that what seems to be an outline of chapters and content and stuff. And out of that vague kind of mishmash of stuff, there seems to be the, apart, the appearance of isolated subject areas that could eventually fall into an actual chapter but initially it's a very vague kind of thing but it just gradually becomes more and more defined mm-hmm. but it's certainly not defined I, I really my, my process is quite unlike I guess some other authors who are very very structured know exactly what they're doing mine kind of the content of a book kind of falls out of an initial idea and it's like I, I've, I've likened it sometimes to you take a block of granite and a great sculptor will always tell you that the image that they're trying to create was always in there and they're not necessarily creating it, they're, they're discovering the, the yeah. image that was already there. And, mm. and so in a sense, I, I think my writing process is I'm discovering what's already there and without putting too many ideas on it. So I'm pulling away and digging away and gradually start to reveal the actual subject that was always there, but people just didn't know about it yet because it needed to be revealed. I never really thought about it that way. I'm glad we're having this conversation. <laughs> Same here. God, that's, that's great. I'm going to write yeah. this down. <laughs> this is how I write. I didn't even know. It's, it's a book idea. There, I didn't even David. know how I wrote. This is great. God, brilliant. <laughs> so, I mean, my, my initial question was actually in terms of the title of that specific book, um, Is Your Life Mapped Out? Unraveling yeah. the Mystery of Destiny versus Free Will. What yeah. are your views on that? Well, I, I have a great interest in, it. does everything happen to you or how much, or do we create and manufacture? I think common sense tells you that, that, you know, if I want to go to the shops, I physically decide to go down to the shops. So, so we're definitely, do, you know, we're definitely influencing, and to what degree do we start influencing? If you start looking at maybe, bridging, you know, spirituality, philosophy, science and stuff. And maybe Mm -hmm. we, and I do believe that we're deeply interconnected and maybe when you intend to do something, then through this deep interconnectedness, we kind of almost are heard or felt by other people who who can who are connected to us, who kind of gravitate into our path and all that. And, and so I wrote about all that because that's what I believe. And I was trying to find a philosophical and scientific framework that might not necessarily prove that, but at least lend support to a general idea. And that was my goal with the book. But at the same time, I do think there is a grander purpose to a lot of things. And, and, I, and in the book, I made this analogy mm-hmm. that imagine you're on a big wide river and you have a little boat, a little canoe, and you have a paddle, 
Mm-hmm. And you can paddle to the left and the right. And this is your mind. This is your intentions, your actions you take, or even just your general hopes and dreams and intentions, which create little currents which pull you from place to place. And you can paddle left, right, backwards, forward, round in a wee circle that a lot of people do. But at the same time, the river has a current. And sometimes the current's really strongly pulling you over there and you can pull, you can paddle as hard as you want in that direction and you might well be able to resist the current. But sometimes the best thing in life to do in those times is to let go, go with the flow. Mm-hmm. And when you join the current, you usually end up where you're trying to get in the first place anyway, mm-hmm. but you go in a roundabout kind of way. Yeah. And so I think there are column currents in our lives that you can't see, it's like invisible forces or maybe a, an invisible uh, landscape or, or you know, geometry mm-hmm. to life, like an invisible, think of it as an invisible geometry. It's like life isn't flat, isn't, you know, there's invisible currents and forces that, that nudge you to the left and to the right. So in the book, I explored all that as well. So the reason I wrote that book is because I thought, I'm so fascinated with this and I want to see if I can find a, some science and philosophy that might not necessarily prove it, because I don't think you can prove where we are in science, but I think you can certainly lend support for an idea that you believe in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was my goal. And and so where I ended <coughs> up with it is I, f- I think there's a fine, div- you know, the intermix destiny and free will, you mm. know, purpose, meaning to things, interacting with your own desire, for, for things, and I think they interact and flow together. Sometimes these seeming forces of destiny are much stronger, and it's best you just let go and go with the flow. Yeah. But other times the current is very weak, and there really is a great opportunity for you to paddle wherever you like, and it, and it kind of varies from person to person, from time to time, and it's not the same for everyone. Some people are born into different rivers with much more difficult sets of circumstances, rapids and rocks and wee narrow channels, and mm-hmm. other people it seems really, really easy. And so, so I, I tried to suggest, I tried to paint that picture as well. What applies to one person doesn't always equally apply to someone else in a different set of circumstances. Yeah. So, so that's how I approach the overall subject. Hmm. So the book was really about exploring that general idea. Yeah. Do, do you think there's a reason that some people have more challenging lives than others? It, from Probably. the perspective of maybe, you know, like the soul's journey or a creator has made their life a bit harder for... In, in, term, <laughs> in terms of the soul's journey, I, you know, I, I don't know if I want to say categorically because mm-hmm. it might not entirely be, be correct. I mean, I think sometimes things can just happen perhaps. But I, I think generally in the soul's journey, I would say if you think of... I, I believe we have a soul or a soul has a you. Mm-hmm. Like the soul has a me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, uh, that we are, we are, I think this physical form <clears throat> is an extension or, or a, a manifestation of something much greater than you are, that you feel yourself to be. And, and so from that perspective, then that soul or that consciousness perhaps is vast relative to you. Uh, and so where you might not, we might not fully understand the reasons for things, I wonder if that vastness of intelligence might well have a better perspective on things. And so sometimes it might well think it would be a good idea for you to be born into this set of circumstances. But I'm reluctant to say I absolutely, totally believe that all the time. Because I think, you know, I don't know if that's correct because some people have a really awful circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, 
if the the soul would always choose that. I mean, from a human perspective, you think, oh, no way, you know. Yeah. But I, I just don't know. I, I would love to say it's always a soul's choice, but I, <laughs> I don't. I don't know if we know enough to categorically say that. Precisely. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it, you know, because that would be unfair to yeah. say to people that it was your own choice. Because how, how do we, how do I know? It's true. You know, we can yeah. always have ideas of how <laughs> things might work, but I think that's how science works. Is you, yeah. you're only, you can only always approximate something until a, a deeper theory comes in. Yes. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, but I think it's. Uh, it can be an empowering belief system for somebody yeah, who has a very be. difficult... I mean, I know uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer, for example, yeah. he had a terrible um, early life. I can't remember the exact specifics. I think his father was an alcoholic that used to beat him severely. Mm. And he believed that his creator, you know, um, put him into that environment in order for him to you know, learn how to love and, and yeah. whatnot. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is an empowering belief system. Yeah. And my hunch is... <laughs> For the most part, it's probably correct. For the most part. But I don't know if it's entirely correct all the time. If that, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's entirely correct all the time. It might well be. But I've not thought, I've not felt my way through it enough. I have a hunch, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. But I, I haven't felt my way deeply into it enough it, to consider what it might be like in other contexts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, do, do you think that science will ever be able to prove things like that? I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I would like to have a go. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I, feel, I, feel, I feel part of my purpose is to, almost as a translator. Yeah. You know, like someone might translate one language into another, like... Someone might translate French into someone who doesn't speak French. I've always considered my light, my purpose is a bit of a translator, where I translate seemingly complex subjects into everyday language that my mum and dad and Auntie Jean <laughs> can understand, you know, and, and make sense of it and be find it useful in their life. Uh, and at the same time, part I, part of my purpose at the same time, I think, is to I really want to understand how things work mm. uh, and not you and and explain it so I, I think part of my thing maybe uh, is to explore the deeper understanding of things and be able to communicate it but also if it's at all possible to prove it or, or go halfway there I'd like to have a go at that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah oh wow yeah love it love it <laughs> thank you um my next subheading is kindness, actually. Um, that's become a big part of your work. You've done three books mm. on it. Uh, you speak about it a lot. How did that become, you know, part of your, your focus? Um, well, it, it, was always, it was always an interest, you know, when I left the pharmaceutical industry, that the broader focus for me was about, you know, it, it was educating, it was, it was helping you know, it was helping people to become the best version of themselves. And and I've always been, I think I've always been driven with the idea that a small group of people, I say this a lot, a small group mm -hmm. of people with compassion and kindness in their hearts can change the world. And I've always believed that the focus of change is yourself. And so if you're going to change into something, what would be best for everyone else? And it would be to be a better person, be a kinder person. So I think that was the underlying current a underlying inspiration 
Uh, and so I just start, once I, I started researching the subject of kindness, it took over. I found it so fascinating and, and I, I found when I was talking about it, I gave a lot of talks and run a lot of workshops and when I was explaining it, it was like I lit up in a, in a different way. I was like, this is amazing, I can't wait to tell you about this and, and I became very passionate about it. So I think the, the spirit of kindness uh, took over. I think it lit me up from the inside. Mm-hmm. And and almost like that 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 spirit's been inspiring me ever since. So I, I find I, I, even in my social media channels, I put a lot of stuff about kindness out because it's 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 who I am, and, yeah. and it's what I feel is part of my a major part of my purpose is to educate on kindness. To and the the reason I put a lot of science into it mm-hmm. is to add something else to the conversation that's new that gets people talking about it and yeah. it's certainly building, it's getting a hook because a lot of people are writing about it now, talking about it and making wee memes up about it and stuff. But <laughs> And so I, I'm doing it for that reason, to make sure that all these things happen because the more we talk about it, the more it becomes part of our consciousness mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. more kindness actually then happens and I think then we build better communities and better your workplaces, better families, better family lives, better better world ultimately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to actually use this, but it seems appropriate. Uh, it was a, an Instagram um, post that you put up called, do what's in your heart, mm. be yourself. Yeah. And you say, I write and speak a lot about kindness, yet kindness doesn't sell as much as many other topics. I could easily dial down, but I don't. Writing and speaking about kindness is in my heart. It's part of who I am. Regardless of whether of any of my kindness books I've written three ever becomes a bestseller, I know there's a purpose in me doing it. I know this because it feels like the right thing to do. Yeah. When you say that, it feels like the right thing to do. How do you know that? What are you feeling? (laughs) You know, it's such a tangible thing, isn't it? And when I say kindness tends not to sell, my kindness books are, generally speaking, much lower sales. And I could easily dial it down. I could easily focus more on promoting the stuff in my other books. But the kindness stuff is such a huge part of me and it's part of who I am. And it gives meaning and purpose to my life. So even though it doesn't sell in the traditional sense, like the books are not, the books certainly aren't making me a heck of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, of the twenty-seven people that have read them so far, you know, <laughs> not making not making a lot of money. But it, it, it feels like the right thing to do. And when I say feels like the right thing to do, I think sometimes you just find that there are certain ideas or, or behaviours that just bring joy to you from the inside out. And so when I say something feels right, it partly because it brings joy, but secondly because in some kind of deep mm-hmm. level of knowing, of intuition, I just kind of feel it's the right thing. And maybe that purpose, that reason, hasn't even unfolded yet for me. Maybe it hasn't even unfolded yet for anyone watching this or listening to this conversation. Mm-hmm. But maybe this is... I'm. Maybe I'm contributing to a con a bigger conversation that you know the essence of it is is only building, and only your deeper consciousness will be aware of that of what that actually is turning into. And so I think sometimes when you something feels like the right thing to do, a path feels like the right path, the right direction, it's because something is building and your deeper aspects of your being, your consciousness, your soul, your subconscious mm. is more aware of that than you. And so you're just getting these little instincts that even though this isn't going to pay the mortgage or even though this 
is, doesn't make sense right now, just got to do it. It just is the right direction to go and it is the right thing to, to do. So when I say something feels right, I think that's what I'm getting at. It's a deeper part of, of me just knows that there's something building. And even if I don't know it up here yet, I can feel it. And so hmm. that's kind of what I mean. Yeah. Great yeah. I've never answered that question like that before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm taking I'm taking notes Definitely. myself. Yeah. I'm gonna write I'm gonna put these things in a new book. You know. You heard it here first, Elliot Reeves. <laughs> He's the interviewer. Classic. Classic. <laughs> um my next question, maybe the clue is in the, the question itself. Why do you think the books on kindness aren't as popular? I, I had this conversation with a really good friend of mine, one of the a, a author friend, Robert Holden, a few years ago. And, and we talked about this one time. Uh, and, and, and what we settled on is that what, compared with classic self-help books, which I kind of write in that general genre of mm -hmm. self-help, kind of mind, body, spirit sometimes, yeah. uh, that when it comes to kindness, people believe they already know how to be kind. Hmm. So you're not teaching them anything. <clears throat> so in, in general, when it comes to self-help, people have practical strategies, ideas, I can put this in my life, but people are not generally feel that you can teach them anything about being kind because most people kind of know. And I think that's a perception. Mm -hmm. Yet what I do in my books, I'm, what am I actually providing is insights and little bits of simply explained science on what kindness actually does to your mind, to your brain, your heart, your nervous system, your inflammatory process, your immune system. It, you know, because I find it interesting and, and it's useful to some people to know that. Certainly when I give a lot of talks, people find it's useful. It's amazing to know that because therefore by being a nicer person, you're actually benefiting your health yeah. to the degree that you might say, you know what, I'm going to start eating more fruit and vegetables. That's really good for my heart. Be a good person. Think nice thoughts about people. It's also mm. very good for your heart. <laughs> but I don't think that's a perception yet. So this is what, what Robert and I ended up settling on is most people feel they know how to be kind and yeah. so don't really know what a book like this actually contains. And so it's about not even picking it up kind of thing. And yes. I, I kind of think that's roughly uh, wh wh why it seems to be yeah. the perception. I mean, saying that, my, my five side effects of kindness got number five on Amazon once uh, for about an hour, only because I was a guest on Sunday brunch. And Tim Lovejoy yeah. and Simon Rimmer kept holding it up. That's right. And it, and it was brilliant because that wasn't planned. It was just we were ended up... I remember Tim Lovejoy, I, I did his podcast afterwards because he was so much wanting to talk about kindness. And I think they just so loved, they were so bowled away with, isn't this absolutely amazing information? Mm. They just couldn't help hold, couldn't stop holding the book up. So literally <laughs> my publisher phoned me a couple of hours later. Mm. Your books, my, I remember my publisher, my publicist Joe phoned me and she was out of breath going, your books, number five on Amazon. <laughs> And I, I think, you know, I was kind of hoping for, you know, top 1,000. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that'd be a good deal, but top five for about an hour. And then it slipped all the way back again. Well, still. But that's my claim to fame. It's actually my, my best Amazon ranking to, for a physical book ever. You know, but it's not my biggest sales because it only stayed there for an hour. Yeah, Because yeah. people watched the, watch the, the programme, ordered it on Amazon. But, but you know, mm. but it, it was my biggest single best single Amazon mm -hmm. ranking for any book actually. 
you know, which is well, got to say something, I think, maybe yeah. about the, the, the idea people want to know, but just not haven't not picked up the book yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it says that the the five uh, side effects of kindness. Kindness makes us happier, improves relationships, is good for the heart, slows aging, is contagious. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly what my question was in response to that. I just thought I'd get that out. There. You know, th th those side effects just kind of fell out of all the research where I, I was doing, and it realised that it kind of fell into five broadly distinct areas mm -hmm. and so that's why I called it the five side effects because a side effect that having been a pharmacist a scientist in the pharmaceutical industry yeah. where a side effect is a negative side effect of a drug but a side effect really by definition is just something that happens alongside the thing that you're intending so when you be kind what happens alongside of it is a whole heap of really healthy things mm -hmm. really good for you mm. especially your heart Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, why, why do you think people aren't kind to themselves or others? Uh, habit, life, you know, I mean everyone's different but, but some people have had life experiences where people have not been very kind to them. Mm. Uh, and so you learn, we, we, sometimes it hardens us and, and, and I've experienced wee bits of that myself and and sometimes difficult people in difficult situations harden you, not for life, but for a period of time. And, and, and maybe we're not quite our full selves. We lose ourselves a wee bit, you know. And I think other aspects of life can be stressful and they can consume us so much that we kind of lose our way a wee bit. I, I know exactly what that's like myself. You know, things can be so stressful and, and fill you that you kind of lose sight a wee bit of, of who you actually are or what you're trying to do and it, and mm -hmm. it becomes a bit kind of fuzzy and you, you're really dealing with immediate concerns rather than being able to look further down the line and more broadly. So I, I think we, we are all genetically wired to be kind, it is our nature, mm -hmm. but life, con the context of people's lives which are different for every person can make the expression of that a little bit more difficult. And then you have the most amazing people that really inspire me, that no matter what the situation is, they just bring gentleness and softness and compassion. Mm. And these are my inspirations, I, I think, mm -hmm. uh, is, you know, and I'm not saying that's a better person than that, I'm, I'm just mm -hmm. saying, mm -hmm. you know, we all have things that inspire us because of what we're trying to, I, I guess because of the kind of person I'm trying to be, what yeah, yeah. I find inspires me is people who are already there. And so, mm. and so I find people, there are a small subset of people that seem to be able to bring gentleness and softness and compassion and kindness all the time, regardless of the context, regardless of the situation. And I mm. think when I say they inspire me, it's because that's the kind of person I want to be. Mm. And, and I'm not there yet, but, but some of them are if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, you know? yeah. And I'm not saying it's a better person, it's not at all. Better and worse are really just our own ideas based on what we, we're, directions we're trying to go in. Yeah. I'm talking here about about inspirations that resonate with, with where you are and where you feel you need to go. Yeah, yeah. See, I would have thought you were that type of person. Well, it's relative to some other people's perceptions perhaps, but maybe mm -hmm. not in my own head. I think because yourself, we, you know your own failings. Yeah. But other people, and I say failings, I, I, I don't mean that. I, I've worked a lot on self-compassion and self-love and I, I don't mean failings, but I know where I, I don't manage to be the kind of person that I, I want to be. 
no matter how hard I try, I know where I fall down. I don't mean fall, you know, when I say fall down, every child learning to walk is going to fall down. Yeah. And life isn't a straight line where we're gradually ascending the straight line path to be the best we can be. Life kind of goes like that. Mm -hmm. And challenges come along that do knock us down. Mm -hmm. But we learn to get up again. And so, so I, I don't necessarily mean the word failings, but I'm aware of where I'm trying to improve. Uh, and so, but other people don't know that. So other people's perceptions of me could be that I'm there. And other people who've met me at times where I've not been my best perceive me down there. Mm. And so it, it's all relative, really. And I think ultimately what matters most is how you see yourself. Yeah. And, and I have a lot of compassion for myself and I'm trying. And I think that's why I say this type of person inspires me because it's a direction I feel I'm going in. And so I look to those types of people who are already there, but maybe other people think I'm already there. Well, I, that's the thing. I would have thought that. Yeah. So what do you think you need to do in order to be there? I, I, I think uh, not always be so hard on myself. I mean, I'm not really hard on myself. I, mm -hmm. I'm aware of dialogue and, and I, I be compassionate towards myself. But, but I, I think just... You know, out of habit and, you know, a lifetime of having particular experiences and responding in certain ways, you know, sometimes I respond exactly how I want to be. I mean, I'm driving my car for a year, is a good example. So nine times out of ten, no matter what the context, someone pulls in front of me, mm -hmm. someone, does, um, someone does X, Y and Z, and no matter what the context is, 95 times out of 100, I'm really gentle inside. Worry about it, and I'm not in any hurry. I'm like, ah, it's fine, absolutely. On you go, good, God bless you, whatever. And even no matter what kind of person appears, but then there's that small amount of times where I've had a really challenging day, mm -hmm. or, or something, you know, a bit of negative experience, and and I don't manage to bring my my higher self to the situation, and yeah. I'm a bit more irritable. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're, we're all, everyone gets like that. And maybe I'm setting my sights too high. I don't know, you know, but, but certainly we, we're all aware of our own growth. Mm -hmm. And I think, so my growth, I feel, is in that direction. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm growing in that direction, not trying to better myself, but growing in that direction, because that growth is natural, expansion is natural. Yeah. And so as I'm growing in that direction, I'm aware of opportunities where I could make an, make an adjustment that could make that growth more smoothly. I'm trying to find the right words. Yeah, no, it's good. For it, yeah. Yeah, I get it, I get it. Yeah. How do you know when you're, um, I use the phrase because I think you understand, out of alignment? Yeah, that, that, that's a, a good one. I feel it. When I, when I feel stressed mm -hmm. or anxious, I, you know, I've struggled with anxiety a lot in my life. Anxiety, come, anxiety comes easy to me. Believe it or not, you would never think, hey, but anxiety comes easy. I have to work quite hard with that. I, I was a nervous child, you know, but I didn't know that, I thought everyone was like that. It was only as I got older, I realised that everyone wasn't nervous a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. My mum had postnatal depression when I was a child, not after I was born, but after my youngest sister was born when I was about six. And my mum, postnatal depression wasn't understood, postpartum to American you know, yes. I think it, they call it, America and other countries call it postpartum. Right. We call it postnatal. Uh, 
it wasn't understood in 1976, in the mid to late 70s when my youngest sister was born. So my mum wasn't really helped. And so mm. my mum struggled with depression and anxiety a lot. And, and plus my dad was in and out of work. My dad worked in a building site in Scotland. The building trade slows at the winter time. My mm. dad was always getting paid off at Christmas time, made redundant. It was so difficult for my mum trying to buy Christmas presents for four kids. So taking yeah. payday loans and spending the whole year paying them back, then my dad loses his job, not for, me, not for any fault of his own, but yeah, simply because the, the building trade's slowing down. Yeah. And they, they make redundant the people who are most recently joined, which is always my dad when we're in this cycle. Mum was so anxious and fearful. And now I understand a subject called the emotional contagion, that we catch the emotional experience of people we spend most time with. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I probably, to an extent, uh, absorbed... Uh, it's through a little circuit in the brain called the mirror neuron system where we, it's called the emotional contagion. Mm -hmm. And I probably uh, caught that type and owned it so much that I just assumed that's how life is. Uh, and so as an adult, I've had to learn to manage anxiety and it still comes, it still comes, but, but I, I manage it so well, nobody can, no one can tell. But those are the times when I'm not myself and I'm out of alignment. And yeah. I find it more difficult not to be kind because my instinct tells me what's the right thing to do, but it maybe obscures things a wee bit where I don't see the solution. I don't see what I should do as clearly as I would before. Mm -hmm. Or when I, do, I feel anxious, I, I, I shrink back and I'm very unproductive. I can have two or three days, weeks sometimes when I'm really not productive at all. Mm -hmm. And it's because I feel that little bit of a background anxiety and it's just obscuring my, it's knocking me out of alignment. Yeah. And, and so I have to work harder. And, and what I find brings me back is things like compassion, meditations on compassion and kindness, actually getting out and making a point of conversing kindly with people, looking for opportunities to help people. And I find mm -hmm. that it, it, it connects me with people. Even talking to someone in the supermarket and I find myself just wanting to offer them a little bit of advice you know, not in a condescending, patronising way, mm -hmm. but just even just saying something positive and nice to them about them. Yeah. And I find those little things, tweaks, get me back into alignment faster than classic meditation can do, faster even than reading some spiritual content, content, mm -hmm. con, you know, contents where people might say, align yourself with the universe. I find that helping people and connecting through that, through, through the spirit of kindness and compassion, that brings me back into alignment much faster. And I feel the warmth building again. And mm. it builds like an effervescent kind of bubbling up, gently effervescent sense of compassion and kindness. It's always there. It's, it's palpable. I can feel it sometimes. It's like an effervescent. I lost my dog a few years ago. We, was, we, it's one of my, yeah, my main topics. Yeah, 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 yeah that's he, had, right. he had bone cancer oh. and spent thousands of pounds trying to do everything to save his life and you name it, we, we tried it and bonded so deeply and intensely with him mm -hmm. that when he passed away, it opened me up so much that rather than closing myself again, that open, that love and compassion that literally burst me open, but rather than close myself down, a, an extraordinary thing happened to me, I'd say happened to me, perhaps it was meant to happen, mm -hmm. is the the compassion and kindness just settled on everything. Like it just said, I look at you and, and I feel affection and I look at people I pass in the street and all I feel is warmth and affection and I, I even think of people that have been 
rude to me or unkind to me, and all I feel is affection and warmth. And and, and what happens is it's like a gently effervescent, simmering sense of affection that's always there, and it just comes and goes. The intensity varies. Sometimes it's palpable, and other times it's just in the background, but it's always there. I think it's always been there. Mm -hmm. it, I, but I think Oscar, when he passed away, it made it far more obvious, and it's never left me since that day. All it ever does is varies in intensity. But so that's when I get back into alignment. I know I'm back in alignment because I feel that. I feel it, and it's like I'm from right back into alignment. And so what gets me into alignment is doing practices which generate that feeling. And I kind of think, people talk about enlightenment, and I think so many times I've met people talking about enlightenment, it seems to be so cerebral. Mm. about what you know but maybe this is what enlightenment is it's what you feel mm. and, and my mm. a bigger part of me says that i think that's what enlightenment is it's not what you know it's what you feel it's the feeling of of felt because i have this palpable sense of felt connection with people with mm. animals with with anything it's bizarre it's it's hard to put any word but it's not an intellectual no like i i, I believe that all things are connected <laughs> yeah it's i feel everything is connected it's a gently effervescent and and, and so that uh, informs how i lead my life and and why i i do and i say the things that i do it's that palpable gently bubbling similar and effervescent thing that informs the things that i do and the reasons for the things that i do yeah that's like the the level of consciousness that people talk of um, or talk about as being I am. Mm. You know, I am connected. But it's not to intellect. It's not intellectual. No. At all with yeah. And uh, not even close. I mean, I, I I've tried to find a science. I've tried to exp you know talk about we're all connected and all that. But it, it's very you you. Know, I've found different ways of explaining it with wee bits of science and all that. But when it comes down to it, for me, it's just a feeling that comes and goes in intensity. Mm -hmm. it's, I can only describe it as gently effervescent, like a simmering thing that sometimes is really strong. And sometimes, and I could literally be walking down the street and I literally feel like a sense of, of not an intellectual connectedness, but God, I just love you. I think you're so amazing. And I, you know, look at that dog there, look at that cat there, look at that mm -hmm. insect. Oh, I just want to save its life. I spent, Quarter an hour, a few weeks ago, try to save an insect <laughs> from the shower, from my, my from the floor of my shower. I called it Fred. I see it regularly. It's the same Seriously? thing. He comes by regularly. I say hello to him almost every morning. <laughs> he comes out. He just, it's a tiny, tiny wee, tiny wee thing. He just comes out. He seems to know I'm there. And, and it got a wee bit wet one day, and I spent about twenty minutes just trying to. And then put a wee yeah, bit of yeah. and blow on him and all that. And you know, I think he was okay because he wasn't there later on. So, but uh, but those kind of things, I think it just kind of comes and goes in intensity. And when I'm out of alignment, and it's and and the, that sense is away. Mm -hmm. It's not away. It's just it's it's almost like you can't hear it, I can't feel it. And that's when I'm out of alignment. And so getting back into alignment isn't for me about being spiritual. Yeah, it isn't for me about meditating on peace. It's about being the quality of person that I know is important. And that brings me back into alignment. I've never, I should never explained this before in, <laughs> in that this kind of way. Mm -hmm. No, it's, I'm, I'm glad that I've had a chance to, to put this into, into words, into content. I'm delighted that you have as well, yeah. definitely. Yeah.
because I re I read about Oscar. Um, I didn't I didn't know this until I had started doing you know a bit deeper research, and I'll, I'll read this passage because I think it's important. Um, he arrived in my life two days before I started writing mm. my book about self love, I heart me, and he passed away two days before I submitted the final manuscript to Hay House. He was in my life for the exact duration of my working on the subject, working on myself to be, to be honest, and I feel that's part of why he came into my life. I needed to learn how to love myself, and when I'd reached a certain level, I believe his soul called him back and he left. Yeah. Like that's, it's kind of astonishing when I read that. Mm. Um, how did you find out that he was that he had bone cancer? Uh, he started to hold his back leg, his left, his left back leg. You know that, that when I wrote that, it was because that that helped me get through his loss, the loss of him, because I became it was so close, and that helped me get through the loss was believing that he came into my life for a reason. I mean, the timing, exactly two days before I started the book, he passed away exactly for, I mean, literally the whole duration of time I had declared that I'm working on self-love, he, he was in my life and he, he was going uh, regardless. And I think under feeling that, believing that, got me through uh, the, the loss. But I, he started to hold his back leg and we got we, we took him to the vet and they just assumed he had a cruciate ligament strain because it's quite popular, it's a 35 kilo Labrador at the time, he was only maybe 19 months old and so we were asked to, you know, take the weight of his leg, don't do long walks, just shorter stuff but it didn't heal and one day I kind of heard a wee kind of, I thought I heard a wee click kind of thing and we got an x-ray and immediately the, the, the vet was worried it was cancer Immediately by looking at it, just looked, the extra just looked fuzzy and stuff like that, and like cotton wool. Mm -hmm. And she said, look, I have to get a CT scan. And we got a CT scan, and they told us, yeah, he had osteosarcoma, bone cancer. It was already ad advanced. It was very, because of the high metabolic rate, I think, it, of a young dog, said, it's already advanced. And they said, there's n absolutely nothing you can do. He probably will he probably won't even survive three months. Oh, so, so it was diagnosed as being terminal right away? Right away, yeah. Yeah, right away because of the extent of it and the, the, even when they tried to take a biopsy it was just there was nothing there it was completely mush so we, eventually the, the best chance to say we have is to amputate his leg yeah and, and so so we, we did uh, oh god and it was only the only chance but it, it wasn't enough because it had already spread into his lungs you know so mm. but that five months from that diagnosis to him passing away was mm. an immediately, it's an incredibly rewarding experience of bonding mm. with an animal in a way that I didn't know was possible. Yeah. And yeah. that, for me, opened me up. And that was a gift, that was part of the purpose, I think, is I had to open here. Yeah. Wider than I'd ever been before, so that it could settle on everything when Oscar passed away. And that's what I mean, it's never left me since this day, is that gently effervescent that comes and goes in intensity, but it's always there. Mm -hmm. Mm. You know. Well, I, I said to you um, before we s started uh, the conversation that I'd watched your interview with Anita um, Murjani. Murjani, I love and, Anita. Um, yeah, she's awesome. Uh, and you spoke about how the, the conversation basically was about how time isn't uh, linear. And you said that at, during the time of his passing, it was like you experienced being on the... I, 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 this was at least my interpretation yeah, yeah. of it, was like being on the other side with him. Like, it, how how did, 
and I, I was trying to sort of understand it intellectually, but I Yet, couldn't quite. Strangely, so I, I, had this, I had this strange. It didn't seem strange to me. It, see, it, it, it seems perfectly normal to me that if you think of your soul or your being, your consciousness as vast, that defies time and space. Then technically you were here before you were born, and you're also here after you die. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that clarity that I knew that anyway, but that clarity as the as the, the seconds, almost that the second hand of the clock was ticking to the moment when Oscar passed away, the clarity of that feeling was intensifying to absolute pinpoint clarity. Almost like two points in time were coalescing at exactly the same time. And at that moment when he passed away. I had this intense experience of clarity because I was afraid leading up to that that he that if he goes to the, some other place in consciousness, mm. his daddy isn't there because mm -hmm. he, he knows me as daddy. Mm. And I was fearful of that. And in that moment, it was intense clarity. As he was passing over, I was there on the other side because time doesn't, time is all compressed. Every, all time is simultaneous. And so time and space don't exist in the truest, deepest, truest yes. sense. Uh, and, and so I had the, the emotional and intellectual experience, both of when he passed away, I was there with him. So there was never a moment where my fear of his daddy isn't there. W what will he do without his daddy on the other side? I was there, or I am there. Hmm. Uh, and so when he passed away, there I was waiting for him, if you think about it in linear time. Yeah. So there was never a moment when I wasn't there. So when he passed away, he's got all his legs again, and I'm there. Uh, and that's what I emotionally and intellectually, that insight was it, almost like a tick, 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 tick. It just became absolute clarity in the moment that he passed away. I, I had what felt like an emotional and intellectual experience of being there at the moment of crossing. So that, so that he, I was waiting for him on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I know that might sound a bit woo-woo and all that, but that's exactly, that I look at the world in that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and to that feels like a perfectly normal thing to say for me, but that's what I felt in that moment. And, and I intellectually understand why that could be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? what, what do you think happens when we pass? I, I think we just become, as I say earlier, this, is, this body, is part of that which you are. I think that which you are, call it the soul, call it, a, you know, pure intelligence, call it consciousness, pure mm -hmm. consciousness. This body is, is an aspect of it, mm -hmm. you know, a projection of it in some sense. So when this body expires, you, you, you start to know yourself as your full self again. And that's why I think people have had the experience of feeling like I am the universe. When, yeah. Like Anita Murjani in, in her book, Dying to Be Me, when she had this near-death experience and she felt herself stretching, her consciousness stretching until she knew herself to be I am, of the whole universe. And so I think what you're experiencing is when this body expires, you simply rejoin that which you are. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. because yes. and not even so much rejoin, you've been so focused on this that you're, because this isn't here anymore, where else are you going to focus? And yeah. so the focus naturally returns to that which you are. And what that comes is the emotional and expansive experience of, of I am. Yeah, I am that yeah. I am. And so that's what I think happens. Mm -hmm. I feel, believe happens. Mm -hmm. And so when, when Oscar was passing away, this is why I, I was 
I was experiencing in myself as an aspect of my bigger self who's already there. And so I, in a sense, I was nursing Oscar over that line. Yeah. Until yeah. whatever, you know. Huh. Yeah. Amazing. It, what you were saying there just reminds me of a, one of my favourite quotes. It's a Rumi quote. Um, you're not a drop in the ocean. You're the entire ocean contained in one drop. Mm -hmm. it's, and and uh, that's often how I've thought yeah, about yeah. it as well, is that, you know, if, if you are consciousness, then when you, you know, when you pass, it's almost like you're, you know, like an egg cracked open and the consciousness just leaves and becomes everything absolutely. again. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Well, good conversation. Yeah. <laughs> enjoying um, this. Loving it, loving it. Uh, Heal. How, how oh. did you find out that you were going to be uh, in that? In Heal documentary? Oh, yeah. I, I think they were almost finished, the interviews. Because the, the, the producers, are Adam and Kelly, now friends of mine, uh, they're based in the US. <coughs> and I think they'd done a whole sweep of interviews with all authors they wanted to interview. And I, I think they felt that there was something missing. Uh, and one of the authors said, you should really interview David Hamilton because he'll bring that, what you describe what they were looking for. Uh, and, and they checked me out online immediately. They just contacted me. And I think within two days, I was on a flight to New York City. And we, we filmed in a big hotel and then we filmed mm -hmm. in Central Park. And we just, I think it was about an hour and a half of, like we were doing just dialogue, dialogue, mm. dialogue. And they just filmed it and cut it and chopped the bits that fitted into the context yes. of, of, of the film. Wow. Yeah. But that's kind of what happened. It was purely accidental, seemingly accidental yeah, yeah. from my <laughs> perspective. You might not want to answer, answer, but I'd guess that it was Joe Dispenza or Anita Morjani that would have referred you. I, I probably one of the two. I, I didn't actually ask. Oh, did you? you? Know, oh, but right, I'm guessing, okay, I'm, I'm guessing ah, it was Joe, right. and Anita, Joe or Anita because they're the ones that, that know me yes. personally. Yeah. Uh, but maybe, maybe someone else. Uh, who was familiar with my work? I, I, I actually didn't ask. Oh was, right, oh, I wasn't sure. You know, I never, I didn't even get around to asking. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I was just enjoying it, the process so much. What was the experience like? Oh, it was wonderful. It was just lovely people. The the production team were really nice people, and we it was like just it was just a nice day. It's so you well know. made. It's it's absolutely yeah, brilliant. Really, I think it's really really well made. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm really proud to be. I'm really. I feel really privileged to be part of it. Actually. Yeah. I'm really grateful. I really appreciate that that I that they asked me to be in it. Because mm -hmm. the books out now. Is books well. out now as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. I, I want to really ask you about your um, personal development club, David. How did that come about, and and what can people expect from it? It, it kind of came about. I, I get asked to speak so many times and and I do a lot in the UK and occasionally I, I, I go abroad when I can but I'm physically not there isn't enough days in the year to do as much speaking as as, as people want me to do <laughs> so a, a lot of my friends other authors had you know online things that they did regularly I thought well what if I do a regular online thing like I'll I'll uh, I'll do a one hour, I'll do a, like a half hour to forty five minutes maybe one hour sometimes a talk mm -hmm. once a month and and finish it with a with a Q and A then a meditation then it's like a live talk but people can tune in from all around the world mm -hmm. uh, and so I thought I'd do that and then I, I I was asking other people about this kind of thing and, and what I thought would be a good idea is to create a, a member web members only website where 
I, I, I upload new, every, whenever ever I've got a new idea, I upload something new to the site. Mm -hmm. And so people can go into there and get lots of training videos in the mind-body connection, self-esteem, kindness, life and spiritual. I call these my four pillars. That's right, I've got them down here. Yeah, and, yeah, I just, yeah. and I, so I populate a website, a private website, with videos and audios and training materials on that, uh, which, was, which is increasing all the time. And then I do a live thing. So it really came out of, of being able, of wanting to reach out to people when I can't physically do all that, but at least a lot of people can then participate. Yes. And what I do. Yeah. And like an act of, you know, Q&A as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. Kind of setting. It's great. It looks yeah, awesome, yeah. I have to say. I really enjoy it. I yeah. really enjoy it, yeah. Because it's £9.99 a month, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is, what, $15, something like that? About 13 actually. 13 13 yeah. So people should check that out. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> hopefully, yeah. I, I, I'm still, it's still in, a, in its infancy, it's still in its early days at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I re I've only been running it three, four months, but I really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I love doing it. Yeah. Actually. What are your uh, sort of goals or hopes for it? I don't really know. I, I, I haven't even thought, thought about it. I, I'm just going to keep doing it and, mm -hmm. and just see what happens. You know, it, it might have to, you know, it might evolve. If it gets bigger and bigger, it, it might evolve. I, I, it's one of these things that you don't really know what it's going to look like in the future. You've just got to do it and then respond to the way things need to be as they need to be that. And I find mm. that is often the case with me. Like, I don't try to be too clear on how it needs to look because life and situations happen. Plus, I want I to provide something that's useful to people. So I'm asking people, what do you want? Hmm. And so until I know what's working and what's what, how I'm better serving people, I think the Personal Development Club is evolving as I'm learning to better serve the people that, that are part of it. Hmm. You know, so I don't really know exactly what it's going to look like because it's evolving. It's, evolve it's evolving already, even after just three or four months. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> well, what's the, what does the future look like for you, David? What are you working on at the moment? Uh, what, where are you headed? Uh, more writing about kindness, hmm. uh, more understanding, uh, you're more translating, you know, more meaning more learning new things about how the world works and, and explaining it to people. I, I'm currently in the middle of a, a part-time university degree in mathematics and physics because I, I, I want to learn how to speak fluent math. Because I, I, I think, you know, there's lots of people in the world, they have philosophical or spiritual ideas of stuff. And I, I don't think they, they get the, the credence that they should. I think they're worth more than than maybe mainstream scientists might think. And, and I, I think I have my own spiritual and philosophical beliefs. And I've come to learn over the few years that if you can explain something in the language of mathematics, then it gets taken a lot more seriously. So I, I, would, I would like to put my spiritual and philosophical ideas, not just in, in the written word, written paper, mm -hmm. but in the language of mathematics. So I figured, I want to learn how to speak the language fluently. So I, I absolutely love it. You know, it's, it's one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done. So I'm literally speaking math every day. <laughs> and so if I could, so I'm, I'm learning to be able to put a mathematical framework and it's already beginning to, to formulate itself. Interestingly, you know, I, I, lo I really enjoy it. Yeah. What, what have been some of the revelations from what you've studied already then? 
And it really, really just, uh, just, und I think just understanding how to speak the language. Yeah. And, and it's funny, like for example, it, let's say you wanted, you want to, you want to know if if an asteroid or a comet's coming towards the Earth, then you can track its trajectory, but you can figure it out mathematically where it's going to be in, you know, in five minutes, in five days, in a million years with extraordinary precision using maths. <clears throat> but at the same time, we can also describe how a vibrating field of energy interacts with another vibrating field of energy, what the outcome of that might be. We can predict what the outcome of that might be. But what if a vibrating field of, this is why when you get to philosophy and some philosophers are suggesting that maybe consciousness is primary, that which you are, and maybe matter is secondary, but it just doesn't feel that way. It doesn't appear that way. But maybe, maybe, and a lot of philosophers really look at the world in that way, and, and some scientists do as well. That that how might that work? And so part of my goal also is to say, if that let, let's just pretend for a moment that that was true. No one's ever described that mathematically, and so could I find a way? of saying, well, if there's a field of energy here of consciousness, how might that, how could I describe the, in, the way that that interacts with, with the world? Mm. And, and I think when you can do that mathematically and start to describe how it is that mind or consciousness could interact with matter, if you can describe that mathematically, then you're starting to put some, some things together that might be taken more seriously yeah. in, in the mainstream. And I think I'm quite passionate about, about that. And, and so I, I want to know how to speak the language of mathematics and physics. Obviously, mathematics and physics go hand in hand. Hence, a joint honours degree mm -hmm. in mathematics and physics that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. you know? It's funny because you said something earlier, and it prompted me to think that you know you have, I suppose, like science, and you have spirituality. And I think that historically, the Venn diagram of that had virtually no overlap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it seems as though there's getting more and more in between there and yeah, that's starting to build. I, I think there's, there's definitely more of an overlap mm -hmm. in philosophy is providing, you know, Eastern and Western philosophy is providing mm -hmm. that wee bit of overlap. I mean, I, I love the philosophy of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. You know, they have, you know, Tibetan Buddhists have a theory of relativity, believe it or not. It's called dependent know. origination or dependent arising. Uh, and they, they look at how everything only exists relative to something else in the context of something else. Nothing can exist in and of itself without a relationship to something else. And so they have a really deep philosophy, which is so, in non-mathematical terms, is an incredible description of Einstein's theory of relativity. Mm. <clears throat> and it's amazing. It's beautiful, really. Uh, and one of my favourite books, actually, is by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, The Universe in a Single Atom. Hmm. And he talks about dependent origination, but the science of the overlap as well. It's a beautiful, beautifully written book. The, the universe in a single and atom. The universe in a single atom, yeah. <clears throat> and, hmm. uh, and so I, I think the Venn diagram, or the, these overlap, was always there, but most people just didn't know. It was always there. If you start to look in the right places, you'll find that there is a lot of overlap. And, and so that overlap's becoming clearer now. Yeah. And I think a wee bit bigger. Mm -hmm. A wee bit bigger. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in, in surprising ways and really obvious ways. But I, I'm quite interested in that overlap because I don't think mm. things have to be that or that. I don't think we have to be fighting against each other mm -hmm. about uh, who believes what, whether it's religious beliefs or whether it's scientific beliefs. I don't think we need to fight with each other about our beliefs in spirituality or science or against each other 
signs of spirituality. I think everything, <coughs> pardon me, excuse me. I think everything, uh, I think the best way forward in life is to, to communicate you know, kindly and gently and yeah. honestly. And you can be passionate, but you don't have to be unkind. And I think we can find this always common ground. And, and you, you've also got to appreciate people's differences and, and let people have a different idea. You don't have to punish people for believing in something. You know, people have a right to believe in, yeah. in something. And so I think if we, we learn to, we can agree to disagree, but still be kind to each other. Mm -hmm. and so that's that forms part of my my philosophy i'm not trying to say that i'm right but i, I am passionate about a certain subject but i'm completely happy with this person's ideas and this person's ideas we've all got to find our own footing i suppose our own way yeah yeah i feel like society as a whole could benefit so much if people took that approach mm. <laughs> yeah. you know the, the the growing intolerance for people that have ideas that aren't your own is yeah we're going i think crazy. We're, we're going through a little phase at the moment <laughs> in in the world and you know too much division being created and i don't think mm -hmm. it's necessary you don't you don't have to you know no one has to be wrong for someone else to be right yeah you know everyone can be everyone can be right in their own way but but even we don't have to we don't have to force the divisions between each other. We don't have mm -hmm. to point out where someone is wrong to make yourself appear to be more right <laughs> just so that people will back you, for example. I don't think that's right. Mm. It doesn't feel fundamentally right mm -hmm. to me. I, I could never be a politician, I don't think, because I'd be, I'd be <laughs> saying, I, I take your point and I take your point. That's a, you know, that's a really good point. And I can see where you're coming from. I'd spend so much time appreciating <laughs> with all that. I'd forget to put my own point of view across. <laughs> I could never be a politician. <laughs> You know, I understand why people ha fight and argue with each other. I yeah. understand why, but I don't think it has to be that way. I think we, you know, the world is full of groups of people who get on really well, but who disagree, but who find a way forward. You know, I think, and mm -hmm. so, so I think, you know, I'm not a politician. I don't even know that much about politics. I keep myself out of it. But I think that if we spent more time uh, appreciating each other and trying to find common ground, yeah. then I think that's the way forward, trying to find common ground rather than pointing out our differences. I, 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 that, doesn't, that feels wrong to me, separating. I think we should be looking in the world for how can we become more unified yes. in the world rather than divided. Definitely. My heart of hearts says the future for us is unified, not splintered out all over the place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Do, do you actively avoid politics in the media I, I i do yeah you know and, and i thought you might <laughs> and, and you're a smart guy <laughs> yeah it, it polarizes so many people i i mm -hmm. once or twice i've said something about a political thing and it created such polarity even on my own page and such a complete division and anger even and i thought i don't like i don't like the energy of that. i'm not yeah, I, i'm yeah. not comfortable with the energy of that in my page you know, in my communities, mm. you know, on my online community, my social media communities, I, it just creates so much division. And I thought I can do more good, not by pointing out political things, but by just demonstrating and writing about the importance of kindness and compassion. I think if, you, if I do that, then people will take that 
and you and bring it into their own decision making process without me telling without me trying to influence what a decision should be but i can certainly suggest a way of being and and let and put some signs around it like i talk about kindness being good for the heart and the immune system etc and and for happiness and so people can take that understanding and knowledge and let it inform their own decision making, whether they're politicians or whether they're, they're CEOs or whether they work in a company or whether it's in their own household, whether it's in their office, it doesn't matter. They can take the stuff uh, and bring it into their own life. So I, I'm not so much interested in the details of who should do what and what in the world, mm. but more about I'm, I serve better if I take a step back and just inspire the, the content and, and what I believe is, is compassionately and spiritually a good way to go that might be more useful and let people take that and do whatever they like with it and hopefully that what we eventually get out of this, what people take out of that is the importance of being kind to each other, the importance of compassion, tolerance, patience, understanding, mm -hmm. unity ultimately, yeah. recognising that that we're all brothers and sisters in this human race. And, and, yeah. and so the animals are part of our family as well. Mm -hmm. We're all part of the same family, even if at times we forget. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brilliant stuff. Well, I just wanted to ask you quickly about some of your um, spiritual practices, I would call them, things like practicing meditation, gratitude, visualization mm -hmm. techniques. Just, it's just a, a, an insight into something. Yeah, so, so I meditate every day. Yeah. Once, sometimes twice. Sometimes I, 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 in the business of things, my meditation becomes more of a, a walking, practicing thing. But generally speaking, most days I'll do a couple, one or two sessions of meditation, anything from five minutes to quarter, an hour, 20 minutes, sometimes more. I usually do a mindfulness-based and, and I usually do a compassion-based. Like are they I guided or are they just... No, I usually, I, I do the loving-kindness meditation a lot. You know, there's varying forms, but you're basically wishing yourself and others mm -hmm. uh, things like happiness and peace and kindness and, and love. You know, may you be filled with loving kindness. Is it, there's an exercise that you wrote about in um, the Little Book of Kindness. Is that the That's one? That's the loving kindness yeah, okay, meditation. Yeah, so I, I do that quite a lot. Uh, but I also do standard mindfulness. I also do a, a meditation practice where I just contemplate big questions. Yeah. Like, who am I? What is the nature of the universe? <laughs> What is my relation to the universe? And I, and I find that when you practice that, a spiritual contemplation thing, when you initially do it, you're, you're answering yourself from your own head. But I think after a period of time, weeks, months, years, then the answers come every now and then from what feels like a deeper part of your awareness. And it's not so much your saying, who am I? And initially it's, oh, I'm David Hamilton, I'm a human being. After a period of time, it's almost like the the part of you that responds isn't quite in your head. It's a deeper, broader something that's more deeply aware of of reality, of life, the universe, that kind of suggests that you know that I am, and leave it at that. You know, yes, and, yeah, and I am more than this kind of thing. And so I play around with those kind of meditations from time to time, where it's deeper, more contemplative. Uh, but the, I, I don't have a rigid practice. I find that my meditation practice responds to the context of my life. So if I'm out of alignment, 
Mm. I'll do much more of the loving kindness meditation. If I feel my mind is really too busy, I'll focus more on mindfulness. Mm -hmm. If I feel I just need to expand a little bit, then I focus more on the contemplative. So I don't have a rigid practice. It, it depends Fluids, upon depending, yeah. on the context of my life at the time. Mm -hmm. mm. You, you, you used the words quite a few times throughout the conversation, but it's one of my staple questions. Um, what do you feel is your purpose in life? Uh, my purpose in life, I, I think I've got a few. I, I think I have something to do with the growing need for more kindness and compassion in the world. Uh, and part of my, I think my part in that is to educate and inspire about kindness and compassion through science. Mm. And, and so I use the tagline, using science to inspire. Yeah. I use that on my website. Mm. And, and that's what I mean, is I'm bringing science to that because that's my thing. You know, yeah. so what could I add to the kindness conversation is a wee bit of science and insight and, and to, to deeper reasons or deeper understanding of how things work and, and stuff. So I think that's a big part of my purpose is to be part of that conversation, that growing evolution of something about kindness and compassion that's building in the world rapidly. So I, I have a purpose in that. I'm part of that, I, I believe. I, I, also, I also feel my purpose is to explore the deeper philosophical understanding of the nature of reality and bring a, a and contribute to a scientific understanding of it. You know, I'm quite comfortable in the world of pure mathematics and physics and hard science, mm -hmm. and I'm totally comfortable in the world of spirituality and talking about angels and healing and so I'm totally comfortable because I understand both languages. You are the centre of the Venn diagram. <laughs> yeah, I, but I, I, I'm totally comfortable there. I'm totally comfortable talking to That's so unusual people. though. And I'm completely at home talking about the softest, talking about angels and, and stuff. And, you know, I pray every day. I pray to, to Oscar. I pray to my papa who died many, many, well, in 1982. So, I mean, it's, most people I know who might reject spirituality pray as well. You just don't talk about it. You know, so why shouldn't there be other consciousness that you pray to? So I, I'm mm -hmm. quite happily mix with people and hang out. Some of my best friends are over there and live over there and write over there. But yet some of my friends are over here too. Yeah. And they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily best friends, but I'm friends with them and I'm friends with them. Uh, but I, I can translate their language for these people and I can translate their language for them. Yeah. And it's completely easy to translate and comfortable. And, and so I don't necessarily sit in the middle. I kind of float around depending on how I feel. But I'm very comfortable in the middle and I spend a lot of time in the middle talking about this and talking about that and just kind of swapping knowledge and insights from both worlds. But they're not really two different worlds, they're just two perspectives of something. Yes. I, I think, so I think my purpose is to communicate, is to make, is to be maybe a peacemaker. I've always <laughs> felt myself as a peacemaker, but where I thought a peacemaker when I was a child growing up, I always assumed a peacemaker was between two warring tribes. Maybe I'm, maybe my purpose in life or part of it is to be a peacemaker between science and spirituality and, and bridge that gap because I'm really comfortable here. And I find the further out in the science, like I say, I'm in the middle of a part-time university degree in mathematics and physics. But if I go too far over there, I feel it and it's not, I'm out of alignment. I have to push over there too. 
Mm-hmm. And if I push too far over there, mm-hmm. I feel the out of alignment and I've got to, if I'm stretching in one direction, I've got to stretch in both directions. Otherwise, I'm out of alignment, I'm out of balance. And the only way I can balance in the middle is if I'm stretching out in either way, I have to stretch out in both. So as I felt that, what I talked about earlier, that sense of emotional enlightenment, not intellectual, but emotional, I had to push out that. It corresponded to the time where I had to start learning pure mathematics. Had to. I started having dreams that if I, you know, of of coming to the end of a, a very important time and I hadn't done my maths homework. And it was I've waking up in a sweat. I hadn't done my maths. I hadn't done my maths. And it, I took that recurring nightmare that I had to start studying maths formally. And the night it went away. The moment I registered for a, a university degree, part-time mathematics, physics, dream disappeared. Because I had pushed spiritually so far over there, mm-hmm. further, not intellectually, I keep coming back to that, not intellectually, but in my felt connection, I'd pushed so far over there, it was out of alignment for where I, for my purpose. Mm-hmm. So I had to push over there with equal strength and master that subject as well as I felt that subject mm-hmm. so that I can sit where I'm supposed to be, which is right there in the middle as a peacemaker, I think. <laughs> Yeah. I've never explained Jeez. that before. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna write, I'm gonna take a note of it. I'm going to write a lot of this stuff down. Because I'll probably forget what I was talking about today. In Possibly. about 20 minutes time when I'm on the train going back home, I'll forget what I actually said. So I'm going to take a lot of notes here. But that's that, that's what I think is my thing, is my purpose. Yeah. And people talk about being aligned over there, but I'm supposed to be aligned in the middle. Uh-huh. And so to the degree that I push over there, I have to push over there. The degree that I push over there, I have to equally push over it's there. Newton's, Newton's third law. Aye, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not in the middle where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. It's very unique that you would have that level of awareness as well, though. Mm. You know? Yeah, but it, it, it it's, the, it's the balance. Mm. It's the, as, see, because here, here's the thing, so, so when you start like, understanding mathematics and physics, I mean, mathematics, I, I'm excelling at at the moment. I, my first exam in 27 years, I got 100%. And then advanced mathematics, I got 99. <laughs> and I, I never got those kind of marks at university. <laughs> but it's because my, you know, it's because my, my, my focus at university, back in the day when I went to university, was just to get a certain mark. Mm-hmm. My focus now is to understand. I want to know. I want to know. how. I want to understand it so that I'm fluent. So why would you not? Why would you go into an exam with, when there's something you don't know? Because mm-hmm. then you don't know it. And I, I, I'm taking the subject so that I know it and understand. So why, why would I not? Yeah, this is how I, I explain it to my family and friends. They think, what a nerd. <laughs> you know? But I want to know it. Mm-hmm. But to the degree that I'm learning that, I'm out of alignment unless I equally push over there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this is coming because I had pushed over there. I had to push over there to preserve this balance, this alignment, mm-hmm. this place that I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Other people are supposed to be over there, so their alignment is over there. And yeah. other people are supposed to be over there, so they feel aligned when they're over there. But mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm supposed to be here. So I'm out of alignment unless I'm pushing with equal force or power in both directions. And if ever I take a big lunge that way, I've got to take an equal lunge that way. Yeah. Wow. Well. I'd never th- I've never actually <laughs> thought of it that way before, but that's exactly how I feel, that what I think a big part of my purpose is. Hmm. And, and part of that, what comes in the middle there is, is, is a way of being compassionate and kind. 
in both ways, you know, mm. embracing everything with mm. compassion and kindness. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What would you like your legacy to be? Eh, I've never thought of that before, mate. I think, you know, maybe the work that I've done and the work that I do in popularizing the science of kindness. Mm -hmm. Maybe if, if I could leave anything behind, it would be that, those books, uh, I think more meaningful to me. I certainly feel more myself when I'm writing about kindness and compassion and empathy and those kind of things. So maybe I, I think my legacy would be if leaving books behind which educate people in how how kindness and compassion make a difference to your own self and to others and to the world. Mm -hmm. hmm. mm. How do you define success? What does success look like to you? It, success, I, I think it's easy to, I could easily give you an answer and say when I achieve all my goals, but I, I think success for me is becoming the person that I am, is growing into myself with awareness that that's what I'm doing. I'm succeeding in becoming myself and I'm succeeding in being myself regardless of the, the challenges or context. I'm recognising who I am and, and bringing myself into these situations. And I say that's success, in which case I feel like I'm succeeding at the moment. Not all the time, but I feel like I'm succeeding. If, you need, if you're becoming yourself, it implies that you're not currently yourself. Yeah, that's, oh, that's a good one, yeah. I, I, maybe I could rephrase that. <laughs> I just, I yeah, just yeah, thought of it. That's, that's, like, that's a very good observation. Yeah, I, I think we're always expanding. And so sometimes, I, I, you know, when I say becoming myself, you're always being yourself, but I think I'm aware of a bigger aspect of myself that I'm trying to grow into. I'm, I'm, a, I'm inspired to, I can feel that bigger me that next, the next highest version of me, I suppose, just just there at my fingertips, and so success for me is bringing that into my my daily practice and bringing that into my life in general. Mm -hmm. So when I say becoming myself, it's just recognizing that growth, that natural expansion, and and making an effort to bring it into yeah. and succeeding at doing that. Well, but again, the self, there's no end point to that either. I know, it's all you know, relative, it's just, isn't it? Yeah. We're, we're just making relative judgments along <laughs> yeah. the way. Yeah, and maybe the, maybe the answer is just to say, like, just be myself, I'm just me. That's just it. Just me, I'm succeeding right now, I'm, I'm, be, I'm being me. Right now, huge success. That's it, that's yeah. it. Thanks, there's, Elliot. There's a, <laughs> there's, a, there's a YouTube documentary that I watched called yeah. Athene's Power of everything, I think. Mm. No, sorry, Athene's Theory of Everything, it's called. And there's a quote in that that I absolutely love, and it's um, talking about humans, people, mm. that we are a momentary expression of an ever-changing unity with no centre. Wow. And I just thought that was, that awesome. just like blew my mind. Just, that is awesome. Which is to say that, you know, we're constantly in flux, we're never the same in any two moments. No. We just basically, we are, I guess. Mm. I love awesome. that. I it's love good. that, yeah. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? To be myself. <laughs> I would say that <laughs> the best piece of advice is to be myself, you know, not, not trying to be what people expect you to be or want you to be, but just bring it home, be mm -hmm. yourself, whatever that is for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you had the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what would you say? 
it's going to be all right. Yeah, I, I, I struggled with depression around about that time. I went through a wee phase of depression and I would say, it's going to work out okay, it's fine. You know, I, you know I, I've had a few times in my life when I've struggled with depression, it was linked with anxiety Yeah. at, at the time. And it, it, it's like a black hole and you don't see the light, you don't really believe that there is a way out. Uh, and so I would just give myself a hug and then maybe I would just walk silently, spiritually beside my 20-year-old self and hold my hand all the time and let my 20-year-old self somehow know by whispering into the deepest folds of consciousness, I'm here. Hmm. Wow. And maybe that, maybe me saying this, now that's, maybe that's why I got through that. Bendy time. Yeah. <laughs> Do you do you believe in the idea of a multiverse? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Scientifically, physically, but also spiritually, in terms of, you know, I, I think there are multiple timelines, multiple realities, you. and that which you are spans all of them. And so there's different versions of you in each of these different realities, different aspects of your soul, of your consciousness. You know, simultaneous. Simultaneously. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You need to prove that with maths. Yeah, I, 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 I might have a go. I might have a go at some point. Once I finish the degree. <laughs> Not get too far to go, but once I finish the degree, I might have a go. Once I finish with the other stuff I'm working on. <laughs> I'm always diddling mathematics and stuff. And, you know, always try to bring maths to things. But I'm, my, my, one of my, my wee doodle books is full of vectors and... and Differential equations, yeah. and, stuff. and then there's a wee picture of a unicorn, <laughs> <laughs> just to balance, and wee stars and all that, and they're just to balance it all out. You know? <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've got this is my last, in theory, my last question. It's the last question I've got written here. Um, it's a big question. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? It would be. To, if I could change something, like wave a magic wand, yeah, it would it'd be the sudden sense that everyone would know that the most important thing to do is to be kind. And then the world would change in a moment. In a moment. How would it be different? Because everyone would just be, regardless of what, conversations are being had, people would be sent more sensitive in their disagreements with each other. And I think decisions that sometimes get made that don't take into consideration the needs of people but might maybe decided for other, other reasons, more selfish reasons, wouldn't happen. If everyone suddenly recognised the importance of kindness, a lot of decisions that get made in the world would be decided, would have a different outcome. Yeah. And I think the world would change in a day like that. Simple as that. Quick as that. How realistic is it? It's happening, slowly. Mm -hmm. Despite what we see in the world, I, I think, you know, the, the news, for obvious reasons, has to give us the dramatic things that happen in the world. But I think there's a lot, heck of a lot more good things happening right now. Mm -hmm. I see it every day. Every day. You know, I, was in, I, I went and grabbed a coffee on the way up here before we, we had this, sat down this chat and I saw 
a guy came in with his dog and then some uh, a woman just sat down beside him and told how beautiful the dog was and started stroking its, its chin. Like, that doesn't make the news, but that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I started petting the dog as well and then the guy started interacting with us and here's a wee bit of community for me. a wee two or three minutes interaction, three people and a dog saying nice things to each other and walking away feeling great. Mm -hmm. that's that'll never make the news, but that's <laughs> happening all the time. Mm -hmm. Every single day, every almost every street, little episodes of that happen all the time. And it's happening more and more and more. We just don't notice it yet. Well, we do notice it, but no, it's just not becoming as big a deal as it needs to be. Mm. It's not at its time yet, perhaps, but it's, it's time is coming. Mm -hmm. We'll start talking about that more than the dramatic stuff. I would love that. Mm. I would love that. Hmm. Great stuff. David, I've honestly just, this has been the most amazing, enjoyable, mind-blowing, awesome conversation. I've loved for, it. For me it's too. Been brilliant. I've I hope you've enjoyed it. Absolutely love this. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think we've chatted about subjects I've never talked about before. Uh, and I've explained things in a way that I've never explained before. So this has been so enjoyable and valuable for me too. Mm. You know, just so that I can remember what I said. <laughs> Well, fortunately, the cameras have been on, so yeah. uh, awesome. yeah. we've, we've, we'll have record of it. But yeah. um, I just want to say a massive thank you for, for coming on. And, uh, You're welcome. Yeah, it's been brilliant. So Thank you so much. You're welcome. My pleasure. David, cheers. You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show, and we'll see you at the next episode.